Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Sage Askin, who's built an impressive operation from scratch out in Wyoming. And you may have heard him on pretty much every other ranching podcast. I think, I think I've heard of you, Sage, on, on everyone out there. So I'm grateful that uh, you're willing to join me again here and you haven't uh, maybe been turned off of the podcast yet, but I'm really grateful to have you here. Um, thanks so much for joining me and, and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thank you so much, Jared. Yeah, looking forward. And I always think if I can encourage or help one person on the podcast, it's totally worth my time to do it. So thank you for giving me a platform to do that. Well, I think what's cool about your story is there's a lot of people on the podcast that come with great knowledge and great experience, the things to share that people can apply practically. And there's other people that just have inspiring stories that it's like, you may not pick out something new, but you're just inspired. You kind of have a story that I would say is both educational and inspirational. It's a, it's one of my favorite stories. I've listened to a lot of the podcasts that you have on many of the other ones multiple times. I really enjoy your story and just what you've done. It's, it's, it's an inspiration to me. So I'm just really grateful for your time and looking forward to talking to you. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah. But uh, since, as I mentioned, you've been on a lot. So a lot of people have probably heard your story, but I still like for those who haven't, and, and I, one of my favorite ways to get started is just to kind of learn a little bit about your history and get kind of gather some context around you. And so if you wouldn't mind sharing, maybe did you grow up on a ranch? How did you get into this business? Uh, some of the kind of historical details that might be interesting or relevant to your current situation. You bet. Well, I'll give you um, sort of the abbreviated version and uh, and yeah, directly answer that question. I grew up south of Douglas, Wyoming, and I did not grow up on a ranch. Um, my folks just had a small acreage uh, and my grandfather had had a ranch and I always really enjoyed going out there, honestly, Jared. And, and just all through high school, I liked working on ranches and being involved when I could and you know, some of it for free, a little, some of it for, you know, very light wages. (laughs) And, uh, and I, that was all just enjoyable. Um, but then I, um, I was able to, uh, uh, you know, get involved, but never really, there's a whole generation between me and, and our family's ranch. And so that never really looked like an eventuality when I got out of college. And so I just decided, you know, pretty clearly, that wasn't in the cards for me to go back to, um, at least within, you know, a generation, 30, 30 years, probably. So mm-hmm. I just struck out on my own, um, out of college and, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of where we went. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you struck out on your own that, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can go. And, and I think I, I, I was listening to your podcast recently with, uh, Coulter and shared kind of an interesting piece of your story that you your maybe initial attempt to strike out on your own didn't work out quite as well as you had hoped. Do you want to share a little bit about what you tried right off the bat? Sure. Well, I, I think I could probably do a whole podcast just on things that didn't work. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got a lot of those, Jared. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, our, our first lease was near Medicine Bow, Wyoming. 
And I, I'm not sure. I think that's probably the one you're implying. Well, I was actually oh. referring to your, your uh, sorry, your, your uh, banker and your attempt to go out and buy a ranch oh, yeah. I think, to start. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. No, it was funny. Um, yeah. My, my family banked at a local bank there in Douglas, Wyoming, and a really good guy there was willing to hear me out. My mom set me up a meeting. And so I walked, I walked in the bank as, as maybe a senior in high school, maybe younger. I might've been a sophomore or something. I don't, I don't really know. But what I do know is that I, I went in there with a business plan to, to have a ranch and buy some cows and buy some land and buy some goats. I think at the time I had it all figured out. And, uh, and I, I wanted $10 million to do it. And I just wanted to see what, what, what would be done, you know? And he was, yeah. he had a pretty prepared answer. It was more or less like, <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. but, but uh, yeah, it was, it was that's, entertaining. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I think it just says a lot about you, the fact that you put together a plan and you were so passionate about this, that you, you went out, went big right off the start. But I, I, I just thought that was pretty cool to, here, but now maybe mention your, your first lease there. You, you talked about, um, when that didn't work out, it's, it seems like a big part of your story has been kind of going the least route. Is that, would, would that be fair? Or? That's right. Yeah. I started doing research early on, you know, and really following the ranching for profit route, as I know you've, and a lot of your listeners have, mm -hmm. and, uh, they, there, there's a period of time, um, where, you know, that we're in that you can lease land for two to 3%, if not less of its, of its value. So you literally can't pay for the land with the production from the land. And so leasing just seemed to be the entrance. And so, uh, we were blessed, uh, I guess I was blessed to be able to, uh, put an ad in the Wyoming livestock roundup. And, and, uh, I, I had that answered by a generous soul from over at medicine bow, Wyoming and, and went ahead and, and went that route and, and, uh, we've actually had ranches in that area ever since. So, yeah, um, but yeah, cool, cool. So you, you went the route of, of, uh, putting an ad in the paper, which I've heard all sorts of different ways of people going out and seeking out kind of their first land bits and stuff. Would you, uh, I mean, is that the main way that you found leases over time or what would, was that a good way? How, how have you found leases other ways, I guess, for people who are trying to do the same thing, how would you recommend the goal, them going about trying to source or find some land base to operate? Well, you bet. Well, um, I, I must attribute it all to the good Lord's grace. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I could, you know, repeat it, but, but I will say that, that, uh, yeah, the, especially and that was about 10 years ago jared and and print was still very much in vogue and and so and very well read um as it still is in a lot of rural america um and so that was a good way to reach out to the type of people i was looking for and those are still the folks that we try to target today um as potential you know awesome people to work with uh landlords most of them are baby boomer or older and uh they still read print on a regular basis and so um you know, it, since then I've, I've reached out a, a, a whole host of other ways. Um, I mean, to be honest, it, it's all in the, it's all in volume and, and surprisingly so. And so when, when I, when I connected, it's not like I just put an ad out and then one person called and then it was just boom and off to the races. It was, sure. it was months of sweating and re-upping the ad in the newspaper for another month. And, I didn't really have the money to do that. Not sure if anybody would ever answer. And then when the person called, you know, it was a ranch, not that there's always, there's always a, there's always need for land. Right. And so, mm -hmm. so somebody else would have leased it, but, but at that moment in time, 
um, it ended up being less desirable than some other properties. And, and that I was kind of the one who was willing to do it <laughs> and pay, yeah. pay top dollar to do it. And so, um, <clears throat> what I'll say is that, that, uh, it's definitely a volume game. And so now I've shifted a lot more towards strategic and very focused, um, you know, acquisitions. And so we, when we decide to do it, we might still put a newspaper ad out, but we might also put that same ad or a variant of it on ranch world ads and a couple of spots on Facebook. Um, and, uh, and, and I've learned, you've got to sift through a lot of folks that just aren't ready, especially the people that own land. A lot of them, they're just willing to dig in for 10 more years until they're ready, you know? And, sure. and that's, that's kind of the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think that's one of the biggest challenges people find to getting started in ranching in general is land access uh, and leased or owned. Either way is pretty tough now. It seems like uh, obviously owning is the financial challenges and, and then leasing is just finding access in general. So it's interesting to hear your perspective on it. Um, but I, I guess one question I have for you is, were you willing to move or were you looking pretty specifically in one area? Cause I, it does seem like oftentimes there's always opportunity, but maybe not in the neighborhood that people think they want to be, want to be in. Sure. Sure. Jared. Well, yeah, I was willing to go anywhere. I, at the time I was just single out of college. I kind of went anywhere. I was delighted that I could get some, you know, responses from in Wyoming. And so I talked to several people from in Wyoming that's my home state. And it was, certainly comfortable, but I didn't really have any, <clears throat> we had very little local basis in the medicine bow, Wyoming area. So, uh, we have, my grandfather had a ranch 38 miles Northeast of there. And so, you know, I kind of knew the general area and went to school in Laramie. So that was, that was kind of between my grandpa's ranch and Laramie, but I, yeah, I didn't know any of the neighbors. Um, yeah. And I'd have, I'd have went to any corner of Wyoming at that time since, mm -hmm since we've broadened our horizons, you know, and I would advise others to be quite broad. I remember speaking to a young couple years ago at a talk and, and they said, we've set our sights in a certain little, it was just a small hamlet in a small valley in a small part of Wyoming. And I remember thinking like, gosh, that it is, you just, if you need to wade through a hundred properties to get one, then yeah. you, you just can't limit yourself to where there isn't a hundred properties, you know? So, yeah, you know. no, that's a great, that's a great point. And I think, it, we're also, I'm very blessed to grow up on a family farm here and stuff, but I do think sometimes kind of to your point right there, it's almost limiting, uh, in that when I've got a home base here, you generally look for places within, you know, reason, you know, a few miles of, of home. Whereas if you broaden your, your, your search area, talk about a funnel and stuff, you, like you were saying, you go look at a hundred properties to get Re, you know, or reach out to a hundred property owners to have 10 that you look at and one that you might have an opportunity at or something. And so, yeah, that's a, a good point. And that's something I want to talk about later with you is your managing of operations in different locations away from your home base. I want to get into that later, but to kind of carry on with this conversation about your, your start in this first lease that you got, um, you, you went out it sounds like you maybe overpaid or you said, I think paid top dollar for a lease that maybe wasn't the best of leases. Um, what, what were your, what was your plan? I guess when you first started and I'm, I'm always just curious on the kind of emotional, like, what were you thinking? Were you stressed? Were you excited? What were you thinking? And what, what did you plan to do once you got that lease and maybe what ended up happening in reality? Sure. Well, I was just excited to work for myself. So I'd have done it mm. for nearly free, you know, if I could have <laughs> sure. afforded groceries, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. um, 
you know, we did it. And I'll just tell you the numbers. Exactly. We leased it for 55 cents a yearling per head per day. And we were, I, I started out, I think my original projections might've had me making like 85 cents a head a day. And I thought, well, 30 cents is a nice little margin. I ended up only being able to, you know, and that's a whole nother deal when you start talking to clients and, and I know you'll want to talk about that in a moment, but I couldn't find anybody wanting to, wanting to put their you know 2000 cattle with it with a young sure. man who really had very little very little practical experience and and uh you know more or less i was just trying to do a pitch like on shark tank to and that had even more volume of people that called and responded um so anyway mm-hmm. it, you know i ended up my margin was uh 16 cents so i ended up getting paid okay. 71 cents ahead of day and uh, I do remember those numbers pretty well. And, and so 16 cents times that many cattle, if I look at that now, that's something I would probably not do on that light of margin. I wouldn't take that kind of risk for that kind of return. I didn't sure. know any of the, you know, I don't know very much about finance now, but I, 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 I know that that's a thin margin. Um, it's funny. I visited with a guy who's a genius um, over out of Wheatland, Wyoming named Randy Hunter, and he runs a lot of cattle. And I remember he, that was the first thing he drew to. He was like, well, you're just working for cowboy wages. And I, I remember thinking, well, at least, at least they're mine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and that meant a lot, you know, so that made them twice as twice as valuable as they may have been otherwise. Um, so regardless of it being a good business decision, it was a start. It didn't go ba- backwards. It wasn't, it was, it, it wasn't the most desirable property. Um, but that's where everybody starts. I think if you're in that situation, I'd be, I'd be shocked if you get the white picket ranch and, uh, the flowing river, you know, we had a, we had a flowing river, but it, it was pretty low, low enough to shoot catfish by about July 4th. So, um, <laughs> it was, it wasn't a pretty one. <laughs> you wouldn't want to eat it. Those eat those catfish. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no, so you, you mentioned like you had thought you maybe, I forget the numbers guy was 80 or 85 cents or something you thought you would get and you ended up with 71, uh, cents per, per yearling. Was that like a reputation thing that people didn't necessarily, you were struggling to find someone to pay? Cause what, what, where was the difference there, I guess? And, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was all reputation. Yeah. And as you know, this business is highly reputation based and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and there's only about, I don't know. There's not that many big stalker operators who look at all the states in the United States to run stalker cattle in. There might be 40 or 50 of them in the U.S., you know, and and a lot of them are partnered together and stuff. And it's shockingly few. There's a lot of stalker operators, but there's not very many of those big ones, you know, and that's the kind of people who call on ads like that. And and they're all wonderful and they're always smarter than I am, you know, and that's just a fact. And so, and I, 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 you know, these are just things I've learned since, but, um, yeah, so, so they're better at negotiating. They had some skills and it was pretty easy for them to say like, Hey, you know, we can, we can afford this. This is, you know, we don't know what your, your gain's going to be. That's their number one question. And I had to be honest, I didn't know what it was going to be either, sure. you know? And so, yeah. so in the end, that's where the market settled it out. Um, with all my skills on that day. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and that's, uh, it's, it's just interesting to learn. Cause I think I'm in my own boat here where I in a cow calf operation with my family again, but as I look at doing my own things, I'm very intrigued by the custom grazing piece because of the main reason is the low investment upfront investment. I mean, you have no equity tied up in your livestock and that's pretty appealing, but, uh, the actual, things that you have to think about and that you, I'm, I'm curious, were there any other things that you specifically thought about, or maybe you didn't think about that you soon realized you should have thought more about 
uh, when you started going out and trying to find people to work with and, and, and put this enterprise together? Well, you know, I think it would have been good trying to think of what all I thought about or didn't think about local knowledge is fantastic. And I I just had none of that. And I wish I'd leaned (laughs) a little more heavily on the neighbors. That's, that's all the neighbors ended up being solid gold in that area. And they're still all friends and mentors to this day. And I just wish I'd have leaned on them and not been prideful, um, that I'm going to do it my way, you know, which I was. And, and, we were doing some things that would have been considered progressive at the time with stockmanship and pretty cool trying to settle those yearlings and getting them to stay somewhere and placing them and, and all that cool stuff. And a lot of your listeners and yourself are familiar with at least the concepts. And, and I'll tell you, that was a blast, you know, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't have given up doing those, but I, when, when, you know, I've had neighbors tell me not to do some things and, and I wish I just would have listened, Jared. I mean, I, sure. they weren't trying to hurt me. They were trying to help me, you know? Yeah. So yeah. now sometimes they'll tell you not to do stuff, And, and it's, you know, it is like the stockmanship is just something they're not familiar with, but there's other things that we we've tried over the years that I should have, I should have listened. So it's good to get a mentor. And that's one thing, you know, our situation, um, my family, they have a multi-generational ranch and they've done a great job with it. And, and, uh, you know, I have, I used to be a little bit, oh, a chip on my shoulder, so to speak about, uh, you know, and I think some of that stemmed from you know, not getting a chance on my family's ranch. And, and I was just going to go prove the world wrong, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's relaxed a lot. Now I kind of get it when, when somebody's held together a property for, for at all, or get something even paid for, I get how hard it is now. <laughs> and, and it means a lot to have that. And, and I get why you wouldn't want to risk it. And, and uh, the, I, even though that's still a poor, you know, that can be a very poor economic decision. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's understandable yeah. why somebody would, their risk tolerance goes down with age also. And, and also not wanting to burden the kids with debt, you know? So I, I've, yeah. I start seeing things from the other side and I see why people think the way they do. And I know that everybody's just doing the best they can at that moment in time. So. <laughs> sure. Sure. Cool. So that first year then you, you did this, you went through with a low margin. You said, I guess you maybe had some struggles, had some fun successes. Um, Where'd you go from there after year one? What any changes you make on that place? Did you start looking to expand already? Where'd you go from there? Yeah, well, through a trail of events, we actually picked up a second lease down there in the Medicine Bow area um, during that summer. Um, But that was just a seasonal area. And so I placed another ad uh, before too long, same summer in the same paper. Wyoming only has one. (laughs) At the time, we might not have had a half a million people. So we only have one ag newspaper and, and, uh, Anyway, uh, got another response and moved to Riverton, Wyoming, and that was a cow-calf operation. And that one was wide open. The gentleman, the gentleman called, and I went and looked at it, and I just fell in love with the with the idea of it. I and I was up there ready to ship. We'd shipped our yearlings. Oh, I don't know, late late August, and I was up there, um, pretty much right after that, ready to help him ship cows off the mountain and and uh, go on with the operation. So. Yeah, since I, I just went, I, I was able to write that proposal and we ended up leasing the cows and leasing the ranch. Wow. Um, at the time, again, I didn't have a whole lot of, it wasn't like I had a lot of resources to draw on like people who'd done that before. Um, mm-hmm. So I just made it up, you know, we just did a mm-hmm. cow share lease agreement um, and just, just kind of glean things from people like Aaron Berger and Dallas Mount and some of these guys and uh, every publication I could. And then, and that was 
actually just super fortuitous in the timing um, because obviously we were headed into 2014. Nobody saw that coming. You know, I, it sure didn't feel like it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the markets just kept going up and up and I, I sold my calves, my first calf crop, you know, we branded them with my brand in 2014 and I'd actually just met my wife who was my, uh, was not my fiance, just my girlfriend at the time. And, and I remember she went with me to go watch the calves sell and it felt pretty cool in the sale barn in December in 2014, when I sold my first set of calves at 477 pounds for $3 and 68 cents wow. a pound. So that was kind of a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's kind of, that's kind of what we did with that. So, yeah. Had you, had you dropped the, the previous lease or were you still operating that previous lease? You know, we only did that for one year. We ended okay. up picking up a ranch, uh, another ranch, like I said, there in the medicine boat area. <clears throat> and we kept it for several years and we kept another, the, the immediate next year, the very first year in 2014 that I was up in Riverton, we, we got another ranch down in medicine bow. So I was operating two ranches in medicine bow and then one, uh, you know, a summer and a winter base up there in Riverton, Wyoming. So, and that's pretty common for Wyoming and these like, uh, these prairie states in the old days, they would have a mountain that they would run cattle on right above their adjoining, you know, winter range that they would trail up and down. Well, now they're all split up. So your summer range might be clear across the state. You know, it was somebody else's summer range at one point in time and so on and so forth. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so you were, you, you lost or you dropped that first lease, but you were still operating some leases. And it looks like, uh, based on my map here, close to three hours apart. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that was a challenge. Yeah, exactly. I bet. Tell, <laughs> tell me about how that how that went. This was only how many years into being a rancher at all? This was my you know first and second years is all we've talked about so far. And yeah, wow. Jared. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I, the value of good help. Um, a gentleman by the name of Hadley Hill came on and helped me both of those first two summers, and uh, just came for the summer, and then he went off to I'm sure way better employment during the winter time. And, and we had, we had a blast. Um, so I would say good help makes that all happen, but, but also getting things to be at scale to where you can, you know, go there, you can do things and then they're okay. You know, and back then I didn't even have cameras and some of that stuff, but now there's, there's cameras and things at the time. I've got to be honest. I mean, I didn't really think anything of driving down there, sleeping in my truck, getting up, riding around all day, I, I don't even know. I didn't own a four wheeler for two or three or four years. So, mm-hmm. um, I did have a Yamaha Rhino. Um, so that may or may not have been down there at various points during the summer, but, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a big deal. Like right now I have a horse trailer hooked up. It wouldn't have been no big deal to ride down there with my horse and go ride around and camp out in the horse trailer and, you know, eat that fruit cocktail out of the, with a spoon and then, then go back home. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's just impressive. I, I I keep comparing a lot of these things to my mindset here because, well, one, I always joke, this is my podcast. I kind of ask questions that I want to know. And, and and so I'm, I'm thinking of myself, how we have been in this business for generations and still have a very much of like a, we do as much as we can and almost try not to try to avoid employing as, as much as we can. And you right off the bat in your second year, we're already looking at employing people kind of moving past that mindset of employee to more of a business operator, business owner, um, as opposed to the employee in that, you know, cash flow quadrant. And was, was that something you thought would be, you know, did you have that part of the plan or you just kind of 
did it out of necessity or what was that mindset shift from operator to uh, manager maybe? Yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't posed it that way. I can promise you I wasn't thinking intentionally or super wisely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not like I was reading everything I could on it. So I guarantee I had read things about, you know, that it was important to have an employer, you know, a, a business yeah. owner mindset and stuff. I didn't know what that meant though, Jared. I mean, sure. I, I, there's no way I was thinking that. I, yeah. I think, I think I probably, to be honest, I probably was just chasing scale and sure. the idea of having 2,500 yearlings. So sounded cool. And so mm -hmm. I just went off that, which was a super uh, naive and amateur way to look at things. But uh, that in my mind, I was like, I can't do that alone. So I need a little bit of help. So <laughs> sure. Sure. So. And so you mentioned scale and was that something you were intentional about all the, you know, all the time of like, I won't take something up almost unless it can employ the, unless it can return a profit after employing someone to operate it like outside of yourself. Yeah. You know, I, I've always been thoughtful that way. Yes. Jared. Um, the, just, just go, I, I don't know how to describe it. My goal was always to buy land. And, mm -hmm. and as you know, that just takes a lot of after tax dollars investment. Yeah. And so I just knew that I had to have some scale to even just make that even close to feasible. Mm -hmm. And then there's this thing about these big, these big skies and these big plain mm -hmm. States. That's almost, I think, indescribable until you've experienced it. But yeah. scale is like, is like it. So where some people might get uncomfortable with scale and size, like I get hemmed in if the neighbors, if I can see a neighbor, you know, yeah. I get even at the top of the Hill. So I, <laughs> I don't know what that is. I, I just like, I like big country and, and I think I was just born to do that. And so sure. I, I've, yeah, I've never been so judgmental as to discard an opportunity or, or a, I, I think less of a ranch that's, that's a smaller ranch because now, especially since I've been in the executive link program, I've seen ranches of all different sizes and scale and all amazing with amazing people intact. And so I've gotten mm -hmm. a lot more broad in that view at the time I was definitely chasing scale and, um, but as I look now, I had a one full-time employee for that summer and then my, myself, you know, employed. So one and a half, you could say for the year of 2014, that was probably, if I was doing that now, I was running a 300 cow deal and we ran like 250 or 300 cows for the summer down there at medicine bow. I wouldn't, that that's too small a scale, to be honest. I mean, that didn't pay for those employees that didn't make good enough use of the employees. So yeah. I'd be figuring out a way to do that better. Um, knowing what I know now. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that it's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think it makes sense to scale. I think for some reason, some people have, uh, well, a negative connotation towards scale. It's like, if you're big, you're bad or something, but it also is, especially when you're starting out and you don't have a bunch of generational wealth and equity and livestock and land or whatever to back you up. If you want to make this your living and make this work, you needed scale. Sure. Yeah. yeah, you do. And, and I'd read a lot about economies of scale and they, they're valid. I mean, you can, you can use all kinds of tricks, business tricks, you know, to get around those, but in the end, those are valid and, and they do exist. And for a good example is truckloads of cattle, you know, now we've gotten to where, you know, if we have a set of coal cows going to market, it's either a full trailer load of eight or it's a full pot load of 40, you know, it's nothing in between because you can't afford it. You can't, it's cheaper mm -hmm. to let them set than it is to, to, to go to market with a partial load. So yeah, sure. scales matter. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you're two years into this already running 
multiple sites and multiple different locations and having staff under you, um, I guess kind of carry on the story from there. Where, what, what was the progression from, from there? You bet. Well, that ranch up at Riverton, I learned a real valuable lesson. Um, and those were really good people. Um, but the deal was more or less, uh, you know, we made it shiny and, and, and pretty quick, a realtor, uh, chose to offer to sell the ranch <laughs> for oh, those landlords, okay. sure. you know, and that's kind of a, that's something that can happen. It was a good lesson for me, um, in our current business that I've never lost in that, you know, if you make a place pretty, they, that you don't own it and they do have the right to sell it. So mm-hmm. those folks had the right to sell it and they did, they exercised that right. And so about two and a half years on that ranch up there, by the, by the end of 2016, I was uh, looking for another one. So I, I remember, I didn't know that that ranch was even going to be listed for sale till August of 2015. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I guess by the end of 2015, I misspoke there, that ranch was gone. And so I did place another ad in August, September, and I had several responses to that one in fall of 2015. Um, And I went and looked at ranches all over the state of Wyoming, and we were blessed to then move over to Lusk, Wyoming, uh, to work with some of our current landlords there. And uh, they they gave us just an opportunity, and I will never um, forget that. And, and they, at the time it looked pretty bleak. Cause I just proposed to my wife now. Um, and we didn't have, I remember telling her, I was like, well, you better, you better go find somebody else because I, I don't know what I got now. I had a, I had a hundred head of heifers that I'd sold to a gentleman. And then he backed out on in that, in that crash in 2015. Sure. And I can't blame him for doing that. That was just a business decision. So I, I still had yeah. those. And then I had about 250 head of sheep. And then we had some others on a BLM range over still in the Riverton area. So I was still spread thin and still didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, so we moved to that ranch near Lusk, Wyoming. And we, in the, in 2015, we, or I'm sorry, 2016 by this time, uh, my fiance, me and my fiance and I got married and uh, she joined me over there and we spent the rest of the summer basically building temporary fence and stuff. Cause at that time we weren't allowed to put any high tinsel or electric in cause it was kind of a novelty. Um, mm-hmm. uh, definitely a new thing to the landlord over there. And, and, uh, so we just, we just did it all temporary and then picked it all up and he liked the results of what he saw. And at the end of that summer, he said, you know, you can plant as many fence posts as you want. Um, and so that was pretty cool. It was kind of off to the races. And so yeah. I'd say 20, you know, 2016 was a pretty foundational year. And we also were chasing sheep pretty heavy and we grew that we grew the sheep business. We kept, um, so there's a point there in 2016, 17 and 18, where we were operating, in Riverton, Wyoming, and then in Medicine Bow, Wyoming, and then over there at Lusk, Wyoming. And those are three points of a three-hour triangle. Um, And and, um, we had a really good herder over there in Western Wyoming um, all all the time, taking care of one group of sheep. And then we had stuff at at Medicine Bow that sometimes we ran those same ranches without any employees there. And sometimes we had somebody there. Sometimes I was just checking on them, but at the Mm -hmm the time it worked but i could tell that that nomadic lifestyle didn't fit a family lifestyle my fiance was working in the town of lusk there um just for a little bit there right after we got married and it was pretty obvious if we were going to have kids that uh we couldn't i couldn't be gone <laughs> for a week straight you know sure. just yeah. you know and coming back and and she couldn't just handle everything there so yeah we kind of followed through that and then by 20 
Well, 2016 was kind of, I turned out 2000 sheep down at Medicine Bow, Wyoming for the winter. And that was a good example of something that an, an older gentleman there named Wally Burnett, it deserves a lot of recognition. He, he was really a cool mentor of mine. And he told me that, well, I don't know if I'd do that. And that's more or less all he said, <laughs> pretty succinct and laconic, yeah. but, uh, uh, in the end, he was absolutely right because it blew in the wet, worst winter we'd had. It just a real regional winter down there in the winter mm-hmm. of 2016 and 17. And a lot of people have heard about that. Then I won't go yeah. into detail. But long story short, uh, we lost a bunch of sheep and we lost mm-hmm. most of our equity. Up to that point, we'd been like a rocket ship, you know, just gaining equity, doing yeah. awesome. And then we just lost everything within mm-hmm. 12 days between Christmas Day. Um, I drove down there on Christmas night after a Christmas party at my grandfather's um just alone i drove down there because a big blizzard was settling in and i was there for a blizzard and uh we'd lost a thousand sheep between christmas day and january 9th of 2017 so that was kind of a pivotal moment in our lives to figure that all out so yeah yeah. (laughs) that's that's crazy wow oh man i uh i can't imagine especially that that early in your story that had to be devastating yeah it, it set us back to like negative one hundred thousand. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so, so we were sitting. That we, I mean, yeah, it was devastating. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I could put it into words fully, but I mean, yeah. just all points of it. The, the physicality of it down there, trudging through the extreme temperatures and mm-hmm. two feet of snow and all day and stuff. Yeah. But mixed with the emotional toll, my dad actually had kind of on a meltdown during, he was helping me in some of that. And at one point he just said, I've just got to go somewhere. I don't know how you can take this. I, I'm just, yeah. and I don't blame him. <laughs> so, but <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I, I don't blame him at all. I, I know it's, it's small in comparison, but a year after I had purchased my first group of cattle with debt and it was similar 2015, I think uh, I bought some heifers at a high price in fall of 2014. And we had a bunch die of bloat, like, I think 12. <laughs> and so not a yeah. huge amount, but for me just getting started the year after I started and this was I all in debt. And I was like, man, that put me backwards. I, I had to leave. I just had to go. It, it was uh, overwhelming. That was a much smaller scale. So on a very small level, I can appreciate what you're talking about there, but um, wow, that, no, that's, that's wild. So I guess that didn't, obviously it hasn't put you out of the business. It wasn't enough to make you quit. <laughs> No, no, maybe that's more than anything is just being persistent. Um, yeah, we just joined the executive link program. So, um, and I will give all the credit to that. And of course, again, God and his grace. And I remember going to the November meeting, I was kind of on top of the world and kind of a little hot shot. And then by that February meeting, I was more or less, uh, I, I, I don't even, I didn't know what to say. It was one, you're supposed yeah. to prepare pretty well for those meetings. And I more or less went to that one and I said, you know, I've just had a disaster. I don't know why I'm here with you guys because they were all very accomplished, successful businessmen. And I felt pretty small. <laughs> and, sure. and you know, we were crying during that meeting. And, and one of the gentlemen there who's still a mentor and I still do business with, he told me, he said, you don't know this now and it doesn't feel like it and it won't, but this is the best thing that ever happened to you in your business career. You're going to persevere and you're going to make it. And I, I, again, more words I've never forgotten. And, uh, and we did, and we have, and we crafted strategies there. We lost those sheep. What we did, Jared is, is we, we had a bunch of sheep 
that were ours, like a thousand. And we had a bunch of sheep that were on shares and we made all the people that were on shares whole to within an acceptable, you know, ratio. So pretty mm -hmm. much to like 95% of their original numbers, we made them whole. And that meant that we were left with like pretty much no sheep or like 50 sheep maybe, or sure. I mean, basically nothing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so the, the bank didn't like that, but they, they also said, well, we'll see what happens and we'll deal with it in the fall. <laughs> and so I, I was, I was open with them. I told them right away. And, and so, yeah, we just, uh, one of the unforeseen parts was again, the grace of people. And so a lot of those people had sheep on shares. They said, well, how can we help? I think it meant a lot to them that we helped make them right. And we didn't have to do that, you know? And yeah. so they, they bought more sheep and we had all this extra sheep pasture and that ended up being an opportunity because we could, we learn about custom grazing sheep of all things, which was, which was not on the radar. Nobody did that, that I was, that I'd ever met. And yeah. all of a sudden we had a whole new enterprise that was a, a good short term enterprise. It just provided cash flow, And then all, yeah, all the people on shares, they just bought more sheep and they said, well, if you can find them, we'll put them out on shares with you. So we were able to, I mean, I won't promise it was a very pretty year, but we, uh, we stumbled through that year. We acquired a lot of debt, short-term debt that we kind of came into that with. And then we, you know, <laughs> we didn't clean much of that up, honestly, until here real recently in 2022 and 2023. But, but, you know, we, we continued ranching and continued the whole time getting better. And I can't help thinking Jared that the whole time it's just been, Sometimes I've, I've been the one saying, why me? But I just listened to a guy named John O'Leary. I, I recommend him as a, a very inspirational person. And he had a way better why me story because he tragically lost his hands in a terrible burn. He was a burn victim at a young age, at nine years of age. And he has changed his why me in the morning to what I'm going to refer to you and your listeners and say, when you get up and say, why me instead use it from like a Christ-like perspective of saying, you know, why was I chosen for this? And what are you trying to teach me through this? And so I look at this and I think the good Lord was building me into maybe something that can help other people. If, if not, if not just, you know, in directly, but maybe inspirationally, I'd, I'd love to see a new crop of ranchers who are just gung ho and fired up and just going to it. And, and, uh, it's all worth it. And, and I've just learned from that and from other, we've done other silly things. That was the worst of them, but I've done other things and they're, they're all due to my management and, and, uh, and, and that's something a person's got to face and own that <laughs> another good book, Jocko Willink and extreme ownership. You know, you've got to face up to it and accept it. And so that was my fault as a manager, putting my sheep in that situation at that moment in time. And so uh, I, you know, I, it's up to me to fix it. So uh, just don't quit and just kept going. So, <laughs> so man, that's, that's a, I really appreciate you sharing that. I, like I said, I think I've heard you on multiple podcasts and maybe in ranching for profit videos. And I haven't heard this part of your story, but I've heard a lot of the success and I've heard how far you've come even yet to today that we haven't gotten to in this discussion, but I've never heard this piece of your story. And it's inspiring. I think it, it is to me. And I, I know there's going to be a ton of people who are inspired by the fact that, yeah, you, you had this, what a lot of people would consider a pretty massive hit and pretty devastating experience and you didn't let it stop you. And so I really appreciate you sharing that. And, uh, and yeah, there's going to be a lot of people who get inspired by your story. So th thank you, Sage. That's, that's a really incredible perspective too, because everybody has things that happen to them and it's their mindset through it that I think is going to decide 
your long-term path, I guess. And you clearly had the right mindset going from that experience, not letting it stop you. And, and that what that person shared with you at that executive link is pretty, pretty wise too. I, I, I think that was probably exactly what, what happened. It sounds like so. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now we're prepared for the next stage, you know, and that's, that's pretty cool. How, how, what you've done prepares you for the next one, you know, and it's pretty cool to wake up in the morning and now say like, what are you preparing me for today? God, you know? And so, cause I, I, like you started out, I, I feel like I do have a lot of experience on a lot of things and it's, it's so cool um, to have that. So, yeah. And I don't know if you've found it at all or not. You've referred multiple times to the grace of God and and blessing. So I can, you're probably a Christian and and that's, I am as well. And I've found at least in myself, the successes is not where I find myself close. If, if anything, sometimes I feel like that might be the enemy at work is, is giving me success because it almost seems to, uh, um, get more confident in my own, my, my own, my personal self. And it's those hard times and the struggles in life and business and marriage and everything that, that bring me back to what matters. And so sometimes those are some of the most impactful and important experiences. Oh yeah. Yeah. I learned a long time ago. I, I, anytime I'm starting to pray for humility, I start to think like, wait, 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 just a second. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He'll give it. (laughs) He'll give you a big dose of humility. So if you're arrogant enough to pray for humility, you will be humble. (laughs) But uh, That's funny. Truth. Awesome. Well, cool. Um, Well, I guess we'll just carry on with the story because uh, I guess, where did you go from there? That executive link experience and and whatnot, uh, you, you kept moving forward. You didn't let it stop you. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you go from there? You bet. So yeah, we were headquartered out of Lusk and still carrying on leases in the Medicine Bow area. And the, in the next few years, my mother inherited a ranch from her dad, uh, which I was pretty instrumental in, in seeing that that happened. Um, it was a spinoff of the family corporation and she'd always wanted it. And so that was kind of a neat blessing. And we didn't, the first year, well, we've always run some livestock up there and now we fully lease that. And yeah, we just kind of kept going forward and getting better at business and learning and better and better and better, you know, and, and, uh, so kind of fast forward to today. Well, I I guess I could take you all the way through a kind of our, our model of the last few years. And that's been trying to get good at a unit model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so the idea being that we we started out with ranches that like nobody else wanted. And then we went to ranches that were like really nice now. And so we found ourselves like in 2021 with a couple kids and, and we'd taken on more of a leadership role in the ranch there at Lusk. And, and it, and it wasn't pretty like we were in terrible drought entering into terrible drought, but we needed to get really good at this unit model. And the drought inspired me to do that, Jared. Um, The drought that kind of kicked in in 2020 inspired me to look out at other areas of the country that might not be dry at the same time we were dry and see if I could get it working to where we had different units across the country and that were even more geographically distant than what we'd been in the past, like five or six hours across different climate zones was kind of the idea and ecological zones so that we could spread our risk, you know, and not be prone to drought in any one area. And, and that was, I mean, yeah, there were some times in the last three years uh, when it's felt like we were drying all of them at the same time. So <laughs> I won't promise that that was completely successful, but what it did is it, it 
it is, it is, it has been successful though. And, and it's really been a complete labor of love to figure out how to make these units successful to where they can pick up each other and you can gather a team of people at each one and then together collectively make a team, a leadership team that is building towards something bigger than themselves, you know, and we're actually pretty excited in 2023 here looking to 2024, we're going to split it. It's no longer going to be our name on the company. Mm -hmm. Um, We've started a new company called Regen LLC and registered that with the state of Wyoming. And we're going to roll that out and it's going to own like slowly. I mean, I mean, these things don't happen overnight, but Mm -hmm. it's going to take on a lot of the leases and take on stuff. And the hope being, this is way bigger than us. It doesn't need, you know, we don't need that on there. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's something that hopefully it can be an idea that outlives me and, and, and is a company focused around the needs of two clients and bringing those together. And those are livestock owners and landowners, you know, and, and mm-hmm. trying to fulfill those two needs. And we're just really focused on that. And we, we do branch out into livestock ownership on the, on the side and land ownership on the other side. And I'm pretty passionate about both of those at various points. Um, I take on one hat and put on the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all at various times and have gotten pretty, pretty big on boundaries around that. So that's kind of, that's kind of where we are kind of getting caught up to today. So cool. So regen LLC then will, if I understand that you said, that's what will take on the leases and not necessarily own the livestock and, but will manage kind of be the operating entity, I guess you could say the managing entity of the land, the leases. That's correct. Yeah. So regen LLC is, is our new, operating entity. That's exactly what it is. Um, very focused, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to describe what it does and just manages land at that highest degree. And with the highest objectives of that landowner and it, uh, manages livestock for clients and we have great landowners and we have great clients. And I think it'll be, you know, very successful if we focus on that, it's going to employ most of the people involved. Um, Mm -hmm. we have, we have set out into buying some land and we love that we've made a lot of our equity in, in land. And so I'm the dream of owning land is totally attainable also. And then, uh, livestock is obviously why many of us got, got into this business. I will say livestock has its ups and downs. There's been, you know, as far as monetarily, you know, we've lost a lot of money and made a lot of money and lost a lot of money and made a lot of money, but we've figured some things out that are pretty cool. Um, a lot of that has to do with scale and stuff. So yeah, sure. that's kind of, that's kind of what we're looking forward to. So. Yeah. So kind of a question, it sounds like it's a similar model somewhat to Grasslands LLC and what Jim Howell does. Are you familiar with him and his business? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. Okay. And Would I, you say I only became familiar. Yeah. I, I just became familiar in the last year or two and met an employee of his. Yeah. Okay. So I, I didn't know much about their model, but yeah. Know. Well, it fascinates me. I've, I've had him on the podcast twice now, I think, to talk about some of what he's doing. And so a question I haven't specifically asked him, but I, I guess I would have for you and, and kind of those who are taking on these units all over in different places, because if I heard correctly at one point now, you, you manage ranches in multiple states. Is that right? That's correct. We have a, a large ranch unit in eastern Nebraska, mm-hmm. and then we have several eastern of the units Nebraska. within Wyoming. Eastern Nebraska. Yeah. So it's pretty far over there. Yeah. Okay. Wow. In a totally different climate too. That's right. That was the whole idea. And that (laughs) one's just an awesome ranch and, and with an awesome gentleman. And yeah, that whole team, 
is functional to where I can go over there, you know, 10 times per year, maybe. Um, and not really help just, just told no physical help. I haven't done physical Mm -hmm. help over there in, in over a year, you know, it's just, it's just, uh, support for the team. It's all personnel help. Sure. Okay. Well, that was kind of my, my question there along managing these multiple units in different locations, vastly different locations. You kind of alluded to it earlier in your first, that second year when you took on two, but as you scale this and grow this into multiple units and multiple locations, uh, how are you managing them? What, what's the process of taking on a new place, getting it staffed up, getting in some sort of an enterprise mix on it of different livestock species or whatever, I guess, just walk through that process. Perfect. So the very first thing I'm focused on is figuring out the owner's objectives and nothing else matters at that point in time, because that defines what we do there. Um, We always model it after that. The second thing is an economic forecast followed closely by a financial forecast. And then we try to plug and play it, you know, even both ecologically and climatologically, but also cash flow wise. You know, for example, we've looked at some stuff even further east, believe it or not, than eastern Nebraska, and you're getting into a totally different cattle market that does different things. And so if I'm going to be looking at custom grazing, it would be different clients. And then if you go really far east, eastern U.S., there's no custom or very little custom grazing. It's just it's just hard to find clients there like what I'm used to. Um, So Mm -hmm. we. So, so first is owner objectives. Second is figuring out, you know, the climate and the ecology of that. We've usually done most of that by the time we've pitched the lease. If we get the lease and we're done with that, um, I guess the next step is we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, the scale. And, and really, I, I always have that figured out before we go. I don't like these places that are one person. Um, it's just too much when, when you're, sure. when you're putting together something and, and I can't support them physically, it's going to be a lot to, to support them emotionally if they're one person in their own head. So I try to build mm-hmm. a really good management team of two people. And, uh, then I'm willing to support them with, a with a labor team that can come in and knock things out like project wise at a pretty high level, pretty pretty good skill level and just quickly and efficiently and, and uh, just all working on being effective. So, and then the whole thing is modeled around kind of some of Burke Tykert's uh, original foundational things that he did with the different units within the LDS owned ranches. Um, And we've, we've consulted with him and some of his ideas have been pretty paramount. Um, The idea is that everything's pulling in the same direction. Um, And then economically for us, the whole idea is that, out of these, we're able to create after-tax dollars. So this is just a big cash-flowing machine um, that we can invest livestock in, and we're a paying customer if we want to be, and we'll do that and slowly grow our nest egg on the side of livestock ownership. And meanwhile, all of that is pouring out after-tax dollars in that we can use that for land investment and land payments. So that's kind of how the thing all works together. Um, Yeah, hopefully we can do more of it with uh, land ownership of our own in the future. I would look at... You know, I, I've been told in the past that the best way to be purchasing land is to lease it first for 20 years sure. or something, you know, and and yeah. I don't know that any of those opportunities will be available for us. But but I I know that our landlords, every one of them are incredible people and they would probably think of us if they ever thought of that and mm-hmm. probably be willing to work something out. So yeah. I think these things all dovetail together and they're all seasons. So, yeah. That's cool. And I want to ask you about your perspective on land ownership. But one question on these leases specifically is, do you, what are the negotiations that you 
what what are you looking for as uh, when you sign a lease? Do you have a time limit? Do you have uh, like minimum years that you're going to lease it? Do you have requirements that you're allowed to manage it? Kind of how you see fit as far as quality land management and stuff, rotational adaptive grazing, whatever you know you want to do. Do you have those types of requirements? Yeah, we're getting more, Jared. Um, I I started off with none. I would just do it, you know, and so so it really has to be something that adds and doesn't detract from our current operation in the first year. It doesn't necessarily have to be, we are in the model of ranching for profit, you know, so, so mm-hmm. we don't do anything at an economic loss if we can help it. Um, um, we also like it to give an economic gain of like 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. And that requires a pretty sizable unit. You know, one, mm-hmm. uh, one way to put it might be unless it's within like 30 or 50 miles, it probably needs to be like an 800 cow deal to fit what our current model is. I mean, sure. and I'm not, I'm not being dismissive of smaller ranches. What I am is being focused on what works for us, you know, and, and uh, now that doesn't mean that we can't put together two or three leases in an area over two or three years and make a unit out of that. Um, and, and that's been done a little bit. So, uh, yeah, does that answer much of what you were asking? Yeah. Yeah. And did you mention like, as far as time limits, like if you're going to invest your time into making this happen, do you have five, I need this lease for five years kind of a limit? Maybe you mentioned that and I missed you. Missed it. Yeah. Good question. Um, we, Really like, yeah, definitely at least a three-year lease. If it's the neighboring pasture, yeah, you can do a year-to-year, you know, sure. lease just like yeah. anybody else. That's kind of common sense. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, we like a three-year lease. And I really push for those because we can do some actual infrastructure development. Now, we're starting to engage in what they call evergreen or like rolling type leases where they're always out ahead of you. And if you want to cancel them, it's at the end of that first year. And then you still have two years ahead of you or something like that. Those are, those are kind of our new model. And I'm not so restricted that that's all that we'll do by a long shot. And, and in the end, we're, I think one of the reasons we've had some success at this is we're very focused on the owner's objectives. So if the owner likes everything we say, but they don't like the lease portfolio we've put together, we're probably going to bend if we really want to lease that ranch still. But but with all practically, you know, um, yeah, we like some time. We like some time because as you well know, any sort of grazing management you put into practice, which is kind of our big thing, uh, doesn't really take effect for a couple of years. So, um, hmm. and, and especially in some of the environments where we're working, it, it just is slow gratification. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. sure. So then I, I wanted to get your perspective on land ownership. If you're okay with talking about that, I've had I like to land ownership is something I would like to do someday. And so I've always asked a few people on that perspective. And I think, you know, Brad Reese, um, yep. and work with him and, you know, he's got a very, uh, pro by land perspective. When I had him on the podcast, he talked about, yeah, I liked, he, he said, this is your title for your one kit. Pharaoh is wrong about land ownership or something like that. And <laughs> his perspective is very much to just go out and buy because over time it, it, is a good investment. And then Kit is on kind of the other side of like, go out, build an enterprise, buy livestock. And when you, you can have it then down the road, purchase land. I'm curious where your thoughts are, you know, on, on land ownership. Sure. Well, I'll say this, both of those guys are way smarter than me. And so (laughs) you're going to learn more from them, but I will say that for one, one of the things both of those have in common is they've done something that they're really passionate about and really good at. So they're both right. 
you know, even though what they say may be on different ends, you know, Dave Pratt would be an example of somebody who might say something totally different than, than Brad Reese also, you know, on the same thing, they're all right. And, and the key is that they've aligned their passions and their talents with their interests and, you know, and, and they just roll on and commit to a course of action. So, so there's success in both models. I will say this. I really look up to Brad. Brad is a genius and and any of these people who are investing in land are thinking a bigger game than a lot of us that are just leasing land mm-hmm. and in the end um that's where the equity has been and i can't promise that the past is a predictor of the future and nobody can but it's a pretty good bet that land's going to continue to increase in value and i will mm-hmm. promise this the land that we've bought you know people have told me um you know, it's going to be hard to cash flow. It's going to be hard. And it is, and it's dang hard to make those payments. And every year we've struggled through that. And then in the end, you just magically get a bunch of equity falling in your lap. You know, I mean, let's face it. Ag was not the wealth center that it is today, you know, even 30 years ago. And that equity just came mysteriously overnight in people's laps, you know, Mm -hmm. to where it's hard to even keep up with now. And, and, you know, most of these family office type ranches, don't really want to know what it's worth because they would increase their tax basis, you know, <laughs> really. And so, that, so that's great. So use that equity to the best advantage you have, you know, and I will promise that the, I, I'm, I'm not abashed or ashamed to say that I'm chasing after land ownership. Mm-hmm. I anticipate spending like the, the sunset years of my life probably focused around that. Um, I want to do a lot of what Brad has done, um, and, and, and now it'll change, right? So, so economics change, are we headed into a commodity boom cycle, but that, you know, there's as many people to say one thing and say the other. So no future prediction has proved right for me at all, other than maybe next day's weather by my favorite meteorologist. And so that's, uh, <laughs> that's about, that's about the extent of that. So we, you know, we got to know what our costs are at the moment. We, we are focused on, if we're purchasing land, we're probably more cash flow focused on it than, than, uh, some of the bigger land investors, because we have to be right. Like we don't have a backup plan, um, to get out of it. Um, if you're in a, if you have a land portfolio of several different properties, you have a lot more liquidity than if you have your eggs all in one basket. And so our eggs are all in one basket at any one time. But as quickly as I can, you better bet I'm going to replicate having my eggs in multiple baskets and being able to maybe sell one to help fund the other one that we want to focus on at any one time and such. And we do use leverage for land. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a great use of leverage. I don't know. I, I'm sure I don't have my percentages right, but uh, but we're we're over fifty percent leveraged on on land and pretty happily to do that. So sure. you know. yeah, cool. Well, I, and I, I don't think anybody is Brad or kid is wrong on it. In fact, I think they're kind of actually similarly saying the same, same thing too. Uh, they're, they're maybe not as far off as it sounded like in that particular interview, but the, the conversation and goal around owning land, I think it's interesting. It's a goal I have no doubt I would like to, um, but it definitely seems to have been more of a challenge, but you kind of mentioned Brad's a genius with uh, buying land and I should probably have him on again to talk more specifically about what he looks for in land. But I guess when you were looking at purchasing your first ranch that you did, and as you look out at buying more land now, what are you looking at as far as, are you trying to find the most productive ranch that's valued purely on production and is kind of, or are you looking for other niche ways to generate revenue off of land or I guess, what are you looking for? Good question. 
Well, I'm not a seasoned land investor. <laughs> so, <laughs> but what, what what we're looking at right now is cash flow focus more so than than those guys. And so we like it to cash flow at all. If it cash flows at all or comes within 0.75 of cash flowing, I'm willing to fund that with other parts of our ranch after tax dollars generated somewhere else, you know, that's still mm -hmm. a good investment because yeah. many of the ranches we look at, they cash flow at like 25 to 50%, you know? And so if we get to 75%, we're thinking about like, Hey, can we, can we get something on the table here? Can we make this work? So, so we are focused on cash flow. A really good one would be like 1.5. I'm just telling you, that's great. That's fine for economists to say it's impossible. They just don't exist. I look at the hundreds and they don't exist. So very, very commonly. And so you're going to have to bite off something. And, and really all you need to do is get the production as high as you can. So that involves increasing your stocking rate. Everything's stocking rate dependent. So we try to invoke grazing as quickly as we can. So if I see one good water source on, on a ranch, even if it's several thousand acres, I know that we can run above ground surface pipeline that we can just purchase that could, that's an asset, goes mm -hmm. on our balance sheet because it's full on, you know, hot um dr7 or something it's it's really good line it could be buried at some point in time so my bank likes it if i buy that still an asset and we can put that above ground and run water all over that ranch and have it already in about two weeks to graze at a pretty intensive level and that's that's kind of our model is like can we can we can we stock it at this and then get like 10% more. Usually you can pick up harvest efficiency on most well-managed ranches of at least 40 or 50%, believe it or not. Most of them aren't, most of them don't get any utilization out in the corners out here in Wyoming. There's just very little water development being done. The volume of water hasn't been increased. We just were involved with a property that has four windmills, all of which might produce five gallons a minute. Well, you can't run a large herd on those. Henceforth, you can't really practice any advanced grazing management. And so um, we've just been intentional. Our other secret weapon is sheep. Um, we'll use a combination of sheep and cattle and goats and go in there and just, and just add, you know, as much stacking as we can still staying in commodities. We're not, we're not doing direct marketing but we're stacking within the commodity market as to the highest and best use for that land and yeah we change that every year we're never right but to do all that we're often able to glean you know as much as you know 50 percent more than whatever our conventional you know nrcs stocking rate would be so if i do the web soil survey and i i you know, formulate vegetative productivity. I might use that as a baseline production value. And then I'll just increase my harvest efficiency past that by say another 10%. And, uh, but I won't get too much more aggressive for year one, but in year two, you better believe I'm, I'm probably filling in the gaps. We're stocking it up and we're saying, all right, this is how we're going to run. And there's times when we graze stuff shorter than some people would graze stuff. It's very intentional when we do that. Almost always it's an area of land that we want to clean up. It has old pasture, you know, in there. And a lot of these ranches that we're looking at have old perennial grasses that are totally lignified and unpalatable. And the only way to clean them up is to use a class of livestock that can handle it and to just push them on there in small areas as dense as you can try to trample or eat all of it, you know, and, um, and we try to do a lot of that. We do a lot of that anymore with sheep in a controlled setting. Um, but we're grazing a lot of that at 30,000 plus pounds of density and with really great results, just amazing fertility. And so I think there's an, I, I think some of these people that are pretty encouraging, I haven't unlocked it, but I think there's a ranch inside every ranch. And then let's not forget the last part. If we're involved in land ownership, 
we are going to be chasing after other things that come from it. And one of the things that these really smart guys have taught me is that there's always something extra. So there's an extra right. It's a, you know, air, it's uh, underground, it's uh, uh, some sort of access, it's hunting, it's, you know, the recreational value. It's, there's mm-hmm. something there you've got to develop. And even if it's not much, um, if, if you can chip in and make something just cash flow. You, those extra things will come to you over time. Um, yeah. So it's worthwhile when selecting a property, to try to look at something in a, you know, if there's pipeline corridors coming through, I think it's probably brilliant to try to look at something in that area. Cause they're probably going to put them through the same general area within mm-hmm. a few miles of the other pipeline corridors and exo facto, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. I mean, yeah. most of the trails we were on came from, you know, back, they were Indian trails way before they, especially back where you live and stuff. Uh, before they were these these current ones today you know i was just on the Natchez trace uh three days ago so pretty pretty cool example of that we build we build our roads in the same places so it's the easiest place to go so i think that's pretty important um yeah the ability to develop water is paramount everywhere west of the 100th meridian as far as i can tell so Mm -hmm. i just need one good well and i can do a lot with it if i don't have one good well I'm probably a little skeptical to go there, but we still have the ability to beat that by running sheep. We can run sheep where we don't have hardly any water and be very successful. So, yeah, that's really cool. It makes me think, I listen to a lot of like real estate podcasts and they talk about, you know, um, not ranches, apartment buildings and stuff. They're valued based on occupancy and rents. And so there's a certain CapEx calculated or based on how much rent there is. And a person who can go in, fix up some units, maybe increase the occupancy, get a little more rent has forced, you know, appreciation into that building, not because the building is now worth more, but because it's generating more income. And you're kind of doing the same way. I mean, you come into a ranch that's valued, you know, maybe at, I think Coulter talked a lot about 10 to $15,000 an animal unit or something. I forget now what the number is. Maybe it's more than that now, but if you can go in and double the stocking rate, You've now taken that from ten to fifteen down to five to seventy five hundred, you know, dollars per animal unit. That you, you've got a competitive advantage against all the people out there, you know, running at half the stocking rate. Um, if I understand that, that's correctly. right. So that's I like that perspective, and that's kind of the cool thing where I love about the whole regeneration and regenerative management and soil health movement and stuff is just I just love how complementary it is to profitability and finance, you know, the financial uh, benefits to the ranch. So it's cool that you bet. Yeah. Very real, real, very real advantage. (laughs) You bet. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I mean, to put it in a real nutshell, I think, I think if you can cash flow it, do it. And that would definitely correlate with what Brad said. Um, And you will be happy you did because Mm -hmm. you'll sit there and the doubling rate, who knows if it's seven years, five years or 10 years, but it's going to be one of those three and, and, and suddenly you've got a lot sitting there and, and you can't start. There's no time like today to start, you know? So yeah. I would, we try to keep our land as like a gross revenue. You know, we try to produce the gross revenue and only use like half of our, our net profit out of that. That's a pretty safe net profit for land investment. That'd be more of like a Dave Ramsey strategy. Um, we're not very good at that. There's years we've used every dime of it and then we've needed to beg, borrow a few others, you know, (laughs) but, but uh, to make that land payment, but, um, but, but that's, I mean, if you can cash flow it, you should, you should go for it. Cause, cause you'll have more money sitting there. I know a lot of people who've custom grazed for years and lease stuff for years and it's great. It's low risk, but it is not an equity building proposition to be super clear. 
So, yeah. Yeah. I, there's a realtor in my neighborhood I've talked to and stuff who says that, yeah, year one, you're wondering, why did I do this? What am I getting myself into years two through four or five? You're like, okay, we're treading water. We're going to, we're going to make this work. And you're five and on, you feel like you stole the place and it's the best decision you ever made. And there's probably a lot of truth to that. So. Yeah. And I've talked to a lot of these guys who are older and try to glean what they have. And it's often little nuggets. And the one common thing I'm sure you've heard this, Jared is they've never bought a place that made sense. Nobody. They, <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't meet people who say that. I yeah. meet people who say, well, I didn't know how I was going to pay for that when I started, but Sure. Glad I got it now <laughs> over <laughs> yeah. and over. So, yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, I, are there any other, I mean, there's a lot more we can talk about, but is there anything else specifically that you want to share today? Um, you know, I would like to share some optimism that I think the next like 20 years are potentially the best entrance years that there's ever been. Um, and certainly in the, in our lifetimes, uh, yours and mine, Jared, that, I mean, the, the, there's a huge generational transfer of wealth. We're right in the smack dab in the beginning, like five years of that right now. And I think it's gonna, it's gonna be huge for the, the millennials taking over that wealth. And, um, I don't know, I think it's, I think it's a good time. Don't, don't let, you know, don't let, you know, any sort of negativity get, get somebody down, you know, when this cattle market that's up right now, it's going to crash in a couple of years. And there's going to be a lot of people who are out there feeling pretty sorry, but I think it's going to be the best opportunity there's ever been for both land buying and leasing. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It's a great way to wrap it up. I appreciate that. Um, you've mentioned a couple resources throughout the podcast, a few books and things, but, uh, if there were two or three uh, specific that you think were really important that can be anything from conferences, conventions, podcasts, books, uh, resources. What, what would those two or three or four or whatever uh, be? Sure. Well, I don't need to give Dallas any more money. Um, <laughs> let's see. So I'll, I, I'll, uh, <laughs> like he's that. a good enough friend. He, I don't, I don't, I don't mind saying oh, that. No, he probably, <laughs> he knows it. I think, I, I, I think he is probably, I keep track on my little spreadsheet here at totals. <laughs> I haven't told it lately, so I need to again, but he hands down has the most references throughout the podcast. So you're right. Yeah. We'll skip him for this one. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, some books that have been really cool. I'd like to give you something different that somebody might pick up. I like Dave Ramsey's Entree Leadership. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic book. Uh, he's done a great job. Obviously, a lot of people know him for being debt-free, uh, but there's a lot more dimension to him than that about mm -hmm. the business and what he's done with the business. And so I recommend that. I recommend um, Jocko Willink, Extreme Ownership for just a lifestyle thing. And one of the most interesting things that I've taken up doing is reading biographies of people. And I really recommend Walter Isaacson. And he wrote a great biography of Steve Jobs. And it's just a fantastic book, especially for a business person, because you see uh, it's written more about him as a human. But but it's it also I mean, I'm not sure he was human. It's more it, it really takes in a lot of how he structured the business and you get to see a lot of the things behind it. And I learned a lot about business from that book. So I really recommend reading those sort of things. Yeah. Well, you might enjoy it. It's something I just I don't know where I heard it recently, but there's a podcast called Founders. Have you heard of that? 
No, I haven't. I okay. will look it up. Yeah, yeah he, he. It's literally a guy who reads all these biographies of like I was just listening to uh, Rockefeller and uh, all. I mean, all these founders of businesses, and he just summarizes them in a podcast. The biographies of the highlights of all these different um, major oh, yeah. business founders, like Steve Jobs and uh, Bill Gates, and you know, historical ones and stuff too. Andrew Carnegie, lots of cool ones. So I've found myself kind of binging on that lately. So you might enjoy it if you've been enjoying biographies. But cool. Um, last question for you. Uh, where can people find out more? Uh, if there's a rancher listening to this that wants you to manage their lease, or if there's somebody who wants to reach out and ask you some questions, uh, where would you direct them? Sure. Well, my meme, my, uh, our website is www.askinlandandlivestock.com. We do have a Facebook and my wife has an Instagram also. I, I couldn't tell you what that says on there. I've never been on there, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And we're very Googleable, So it's pretty easy to find. My email address is lowercase letters, S-A-S-K-I-N 12 at gmail.com. So saskin12 at gmail.com. I'm pretty approachable, get a lot of contacts, but I, anybody who has anything they want to talk about, I, I will do my best to answer. So within a timely manner. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sage. This is fantastic. I know you mentioned your goal is to inspire and encourage people, and I have no doubt that this uh, will have done that. So thank you. Well, thank you, Jared. What What a great deal you're doing. So thank you, sir. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.